Welcome to Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a film, uh, we review it, we discuss it, and we talk about some of the ideas and themes it presents to us. And we'll always end with our recommendations of further watching inspired by the actors or directors or producers involved in the film of the week. Before we kick off with the movie proper, we would like to catch up on what else you've been watching this week. So Sam, what else have you been watching in the last however many days it's been since we last recorded? Right. Well, we off here we've spoken about your lack of awareness of time recently. Um, Baby's man, the mess with everything. Yeah, true. Um, this week I have been I haven't watched an awful lot. I want to talk about something I've listened to actually. Um, so it'd be this week's media rather than this week's watching. Um, and it's the latest episode of podcast that I have a sort of love-hate relationship with. I don't always... I mean, not to the extent of gotcha, yeah. But um, it can sometimes feel a bit fairly American-centric and a bit overproduced in ways that I don't like. But some of the live shows are great. And the latest live show that's recorded in a theatre in... Uh, Chicago I think was um, so the the latest show of the podcast Cracked was called 17 movies that were total disasters behind the scenes and I listened to this and really enjoyed it, I really enjoyed the people on it and also thought of you Rob because there was a section devoted to huge actors who are completely unreasonable to work with and have ridiculous demands that they make on an offset and one of them was Marlon Brando and you could sort of excuse the obstreperousness because he was brilliant and another one in the same vein was Johnny Depp and everyone just agreed how he was just a shit and he wasn't a great actor, so how did he, how did he uh, get to be like that? Mm. Um, but yes, that that was very interesting. Hearing hearing just how much of a diva Johnny Depp has turned into. Apparently, the latest Pirates of the Caribbean film, he had to have his lines fed to him down an earpiece because he couldn't be bothered to learn them. So, uh, yeah, who knew that Johnny Depp actually had lines to say anyway? Mm. What about you? Uh, well, I I actually rarely, as we often do, have a real film that I really want to push and can only think of things about. Uh-huh. So I last, literally last night, watched uh, the film I Am Not Your Negro, which is a documentary from director Raoul Peck based on James Baldwin's unfinished novel, manuscript, uh, Remember This House. Sensibly, it's about uh, his remembrances, his memories of uh, civil rights leaders in America, so Medgar Evans, Malcolm X, and uh, obviously Martin Luther King. So it's about his interactions with those and his views on, on race in America. But the film posits a very sort of clear line between James Baldwin's writings back in sort of the 50s and 60s to where we are now. Um, and it's kind of a slightly damning, a very damning indictment of race in America 
um, and how we've got to be where we are and the place of black men or black people and white men and white people uh, together and against each other. Um, it's one that can recommend it to me. Um, people talked about it a lot. I thought I really watched it and watch it. And yeah, it just kind of held my attention. In this day and age, I think most of us tend to watch movies with a what's called a second screen, so a phone or a tablet or something else going on. Uh, this film grabbed me straight away and just held me for the entire uh, film. It was nominated for Best Documentary Feature at the Oscars last year. It didn't win, um, but I, I would struggle to see how a better one would come out. Um, offhand, I don't know who did win. Um, but yeah, so it's well sort of praised by um, sort of critics. Um, and yeah, if you haven't seen it and you have any interest in race in America or even just good filmmaking, I can only recommend it right. strongly enough. One of my first first classes I taught in teaching was back in 2009 was about um, James Baldwin's writings on race in America and it was around the time that Obama had just been inaugurated and mm. the tone of the class was quite optimistic it was quite, yes, America has not made the strides forward you expect to do but look what they've just done and isn't that a good thing to be celebrated and wouldn't James Baldwin have agreed with it and eight years later I can't help but feel we've gone backwards or at least America has, certainly. Mm. But yeah, I, I, I would just say, yeah, you right. haven't seen it, because it. Yeah, uh, enough enough politics. Let's talk about films. This week. Talk about films. This week, we are moving on from the palate cleanse, as we called it, of Wayne's Volume 2. We are diving in to the 2001 film, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Legend tells of a ring created by an ancient evil that gave its wearer the power to enslave the world. Believed lost for centuries, it has now been found. Is it secret? Is it safe? What from here on out we will refer to as the Fellowship of the Ring rather than Lord of the Rings is the first in the trilogy based on J.R.R. Tolkien's novels of the same names. It is the tale of a hobbit, played by Elijah Wood, who falls into adventure, dealing with a ring of power and the machinations to destroy it against a rising evil in the East. It has a cast of hundreds, if not thousands. It is strongly in the fantasy genre. Um, Around him, he forms the fellowship, as it's called, of the ring, made up of elves and dwarves and humans and hobbits, uh, filled with uh, famous and recognisable faces. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's one of those films, you've probably read the book, you've probably seen the film. Um, although I must say, I'm not sure Sam had seen the film prior to this week. No. Um, so, Sam, I'm not, I, 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 I must say, I don't know if you ever read the book. It's one of those ones that a lot of teenagers kind of jump on at some point. Have you read the book before? I read the book. Um, I read the first book and got bored and didn't go back to the trilogy, so I know nothing beyond the first book. So how how did you find the Ring? Um, well, negatives first. It's far too long. Jesus, it, I I watched it, I watched it in two sittings actually, and it was it was too 
I mean, having just watched two 90-minute less than Wayne's World, World films, it was two films in one. There was a fairly nice division at 90 minutes where they formed the Fellowship of the Ring, and then there was another 90 minutes beyond that. So, I yeah, I think that's far too long. Um, but I have to say... Apart from the fact that there was quite a lot of backstory at the beginning that was a bit daunting, um, I really quite enjoyed it. Um, it. Some of the CGI felt dated in the opening battle scenes, sometimes in the, the sweeps past the Fellowship and you could see the obviousness of I know, Sean, Sean Bean's floating head or something like that. Um, but in general, I thought the cinematography was great, and there's some really clever things I want to get onto a bit later about the way it was shot. Um, yeah, it was, it was just really quite enjoyable. Once I'd got over the fact that it was just far too long and just accepted the fact that I had to sit through it, um, it was it was really quite fun. Yes, I'm glad. I'm I'm, I'm so very glad. Um, it makes me laugh when you say it was too long because I own the extended cuts of this movie and they are in the four, four and a half hour range. Um, and it really struck me how quick and light this version felt. Now, I haven't watched anything since they released these versions. I haven't watched anything but them. And I have to have a yearly rewatch of these things. And obviously for this one, we watched the, uh, the the theatrical versions. It felt mean to make Sam, given he wasn't sure on it, to sit down through the four and a half hour ones. <laughs> so it felt to me like I missed parts of that. But I think that's more me being used to it than its, uh, its natural flow. Um, for me, it's a, it's a world I love and want to be in more, so I enjoyed that. Mm. I see what you're saying. I think that you have this problem with fantasy novels um, being translated into movies. Game of the Thrones is the other big one that's been translated. They've done it in TV series, which makes it far easier. You've got you know, 10, 15 hours per book. Yeah. Here you've got to cram the entire of the first book into as Sam wants it, an hour and a half, two hours, and that's just not going to happen. There was already enough upset about the things that were dropped from these, even from the extended versions. There are still people annoyed at things that weren't in the three, four and a half hour versions. Right. Um, I'm not one of them. I think it works fine. I think you're right. I think the film is. I really, really enjoy this film. I think it is a film that lives and dies a little bit by its look and its feel. Uh, New Zealand does amazing duty at different locations in this and I think that all the actors kind of do bring some of their best work um, to this they, you know, Elijah Wood and isn't renowned for his acting skill at times but I think he, he's perfectly cast here as is Sean Astin as his, his long term friend the wizards are you know, the wizards you want for every movie basically um, and I, I, I just think I, I much enjoy the film throughout. But I think you're right. It is, it visually, it is, it's sumptuous. In the early scenes, especially in Hobbiton, um, and the sort of the party there and the land there, and that slowly gives way, obviously, into sort of the, uh, the slightly darker scenes um, to be the match by the equally beautiful but somehow more ethereal world of the elves that we come yeah. to later. Um, and I think the film does great work of setting up these different places that you know you have the land of the dwarves, the sort of the mines of Moria. It feels real, but feels very different 
to anything seen before. And you very much get this flavour of this wide world. And the film does amazing work with this world building. Mm. Setting up this idea that there's this whole history in the whole world. I mean, and this isn't even touching on on what is the the, di- the deep history of the um, of the Tolkien verse and and sort of what is going on behind the scenes, which we won't go into because I'm a massive nerd and no one cares. Mm. Um, <laughs> if you want into that, read the Silmarillion. It's weird. Um, so yeah, I, I, anyway, the fact that I love this film is, is going to be news to nobody. To be honest. Mm. I think some something you mentioned there is just one of the real successes about Elijah Wood's performance is something that we mentioned with The Matrix, that Keanu Reeves didn't have to be a brilliant actor because the character of Neo in The Matrix is, I mean, this is a, and this is a pun based on someone else in the film, but he really is a cipher. He really is someone that you can, you can project desires onto and project narrative onto and mm. it's the same with Frodo like there are sort of warring personalities around him and you have the men and the wizards and the elves and the dwarves and they're fighting against something and Frodo is just he's like he's at the center of all this but he, he doesn't Frodo isn't really a character and I'm not saying that negatively at all but that's a really good thing Frodo is just he, he can be anything to everybody. Yeah, and he has that kind of avatar into the world because you know he's never stayed beyond the sort of the the bounds of Hobbiton mm. of the Shire, and certainly stepping out into the big wide world, he is our he's the one we ride through the um, through the adventure with, and uh, it certainly goes on from this film. Um, but I think it's it also it's good that they kind of the fellowship is this wonderful I think narrative. Sort of device that throws together all these peoples, and so we have reason to know about the dwarves, the reason to know about the elves. We need a reason to know about Boromir and his world, and Stride or Aragorn and his world. And this fellowship that is formed is a lovely way to kind of introduce us to the wider. We meet a lot of that world in the next sort of two films, but it kind of gives us a way in that doesn't feel forced. It feels natural and part of the story. One thing. And I suppose quite glib about my my thinking about the fellowship. I did find myself thinking, in what order are these characters going to die? I can predict it. And and I, I, I suppose I read the book, but it was a good twenty years ago. I I did pretty well in predicting the two to die, and I've got a li- I've got an order for the rest of them. So we we'll see if if that if if that comes true in the second and third film fair enough I, I'm intrigued to see what you how you hold it from here on out um, I think the film does suffer a little bit I mean, it's got this periodically of being the first in a clear series yeah um, and, and the film's always been designed as a trilogy and it can't really work in any other way but the the fight at the end um, and we'll move into spoilers here and the death of Boromir felt very not forced but it felt like you needed something to end the film with mm. when it's just more of a continuation of what's going on and i think the film it, it for me a i want to watch the next film but it doesn't it isn't a narrative satisfying satisfaction in itself um and i posed my question to you as we discussed in the past how we often feel 
cheated by these kind of films. Um, and a great example is the X-Men films. The first X-Men film doesn't really do anything because it's clearly trying to set up a franchise. Mm. Whereas that was a franchise and this is clearly a trilogy, do you think that works here as, as, as a technique? Given that it's got a, it's got a defined start, middle, and end, we know it's part of a bigger story. Do you forgive it that? I suppose it's it's a little bit annoying to think that there is a structure that has to be in place because this is a self-contained trilogy, a pre-existing trilogy. And I did think I don't know whether this is because Ian McKellen is just such a fabulous actor and I mean not having go at Sean Bean but he is head and shoulders above Sean Bean in terms of acting ability it, it just felt that for me like the the narrative peak of the film was spoiler alert the death of Gandalf and then everything after that was just a little bit of an anticlimax mm-hmm. and I understand that they had to have Frodo's decision to break up the fellowship and the parting of the ways and the coming of the orcs and and I understand all that had to happen before the end of the first film but it just felt to me like it was a bit too it was a bit too much like that was a crescendo to a peak and then a bit of a coda. I I see what you're saying. The film and the film doesn't seem to end a few times, but kind of it doesn't follow the traditional three act hero's journey that we used to. Mm. Um, and I think maybe that might be better borne out in in the three film journey. No, if, if you see it at that kind of level, this is going to be this is your first act of a, of a three act of a nine hours. Yeah, then it would be better. But I agree, the film within itself has some strange pacing. Mm. I did like. I, I just wanted to make sure I'd, I'd mentioned this um, this thing about the the filming. I thought it was very. I think there's something quite innovative about the the camera shots. Like the number of times that you see people reflected in the ring, and you see the power that the ring has over people, and there's a sort of metaphor for that in their reflection in the ring. So you see Bilbo being tempted in the ring, and you see Gandalf even being tempted as you see him through the ring. You see the bickering strands of the fellowship before it gets formed you see that in the ring as well and I just think there is some there's some really clever camera work with that that there's this sort of central metaphor of central items standing for the the power that certain objects and greed and corruption have over i suppose mankind but also in this case other races as well it was just really clever how the the film seemed to show that being at the centre of everything, mm. even the way that it was made. Yeah, I mean, it, it is the, the pivotal turning point of, of the entire story, is is that ring. Mm. Um, you know, the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, it, it, it is this object. And I think one thing I thought was a really clever little trick that I really liked was the sort of the changing the size of the ring. Mm. Um, and there's one shot particularly, which isn't right, but there's a scene in which um, Bilbo drops it as he leaves for the first time. Yes. And it doesn't bounce right. right. I don't know if you noticed this, but it basically, it, rather than sort of, like, I'm dropping a ring like that, it goes, 
and just stops. Right. And it really sort of sets up this. This isn't just a ring. This is that there's something here, some weight to this. There's some not let's say power to it, but it really sets up this this object as not being a a normal object. Hmm. Um, And very and whilst what we do sometimes see some bits of it's like it's magics later on I think that very early shot we just drop in if you, if you watch it, ever watch it again you'll see that shot it lands it lands strangely just sort of drops yeah that sort of goes you suddenly go oh well that, that's unusual your, main, your mind almost the, the, the lizard part of your brain registers that isn't right yeah uh, without someone commenting on it hmm there, there are though examples of this um, this camera work just moving moving away from the ring you have the movement of the camera down from Gandalf's prison into the mines don't remember what the where, where is it where the orcs work what is that the what maybe it's not mines but there's, there's forge and fires and Saruman's. oh um yes yeah, Saruman's I can't remember it's called now but yes yeah that anyway the camera goes from the prison that Gandalf is in, that sort of mountain top type stone thing with four pillars in the middle of nowhere, and the the camera swoops down into the this mine, and there was something really really clever about that, the way that the the film just shifted perspective, and it wasn't it wasn't a sort of a, a straight jump cut between two places it was properly mm. taking you into that place there's something sort of it made you I mean, it implicates the watcher a bit the watcher the viewer it implicates you in this I mean in the way that Saruman was tainted he was a good wizard and then turned bad there's something about that sort of dive into the mind you think well actually there's a little bit of bad in me as well and i don't feel entirely free from this negative taint i mean that, that, that's the it's a lot the power of this kind of the, the way they try it is you, you're brought into the action you're felt where you it somehow managed to get that um handheld nature makes you feel feel part of the action while still having the sweeping vistas mm. um of it i think for me that that, that um what you just said touches on one little thing which I hope we'll touch on more in the next few weeks is this idea of and anyone who's studied Tolkien will know this the idea of industrialization um and the sort of the competing forces of the the sort of the the good guys who are all sort of natural mm. um and living in tune with nature and all that kind of thing and the bad guys are they're tearing down trees and starting like big massive furnaces and this kind of this idea that, that the the that nature's been given way to this dark industrialized force um and there's a lot of that in tolkien's writing particularly and we'll touch on that further but i think you start to see that coming out in in these, in these scenes this this all you know this anti-industrial pro nature sort yeah. of outlook and even well it's struck me there that other other films that we've looked at there's that dichotomy that industry and mines and enclosed spaces are negative so you have even in something like indian jones and temple of doom everything bad negative happens inside with people being industrious and then you have outside with the village and well apart from the fact that all the children have disappeared it, it's meant to be sort of a nice pastoral environment so mm. in lots of ways in cinema you have that 
that focus on the negativity of industrialization. Which is strange, given that you're giving it essentially a technology-based um, medium. Like yes. the, 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 yeah. there, there isn't a natural version of filmmaking. No, no. I, I suppose apart from just looking at stuff. And, and that. <laughs> just seeing things is your response to that invented seeing things <laughs> uh, looking can... at things with your eyes <laughs> cinema for the poor yeah um, what do you know just briefly what do you know about Tolkien I know I mean I know his he was he was a professor of ancient languages and history and other things at Oxford and he was a respected academic and he invented languages like Elvish but other than that I don't know an awful lot about him. I must say I don't either um, but I will try and do some research for next week. Right, we are so well prepared. <laughs> uh, we, we watched the film, be happy. Oh, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> yes. So Rob, what do you have in the way of recommendations this week? So I've got two, as always. Uh, one... Neither, neither thematic in any way. I wanted to touch on those further down the line. So I've gone for uh, one actor and one director. The one director, obviously, Peter Jackson. And I've gone for a very, very, very different film that he made back in 1992. Um, currently released under the title of Dead Alive, it was originally known as Brain Dead. And this is the goriest of gory splatter zombie films. Um, a young man, a, a, a very stay-at-home kind of chap, his mum is bitten by a Sumatran monkey, gets sick, becomes a zombie, uh, who then infects everyone around her. Um, and it ends with a scene in which he goes to town, house of zombies, with a lawnmower. It is beyond schlocky, it's beyond slapstick. It, you know, Even the early and, and later Evil Deads don't quite touch this in terms of the, the blood that is poured around these sets. Um, it is where they cut their teeth on a lot of the um, special effects that sort of then formed Weta Workshop that went on to do Lord of the Rings. Um, but it's it's very very different to Lord of the Rings. But it is amazing and funny and brilliant. Um, and compared to his other early work like Bad Taste and Meet the Evils, this is probably the most balanced and uh, mainstream. Secondly, I've taken an actor I've only mentioned briefly a little bit in this uh, review, and that is the uh, actor Viggo Mortensen, uh, who played Aragorn, who plays Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. Um, kind of a bit of an unknown prior to Lord of the Rings. One of the first films he did after Lord of the Rings was a David Cronenberg film called A History of Violence. This film is quite an odd film. Um, it, it's Cronenbergian in many ways, but without, without some of the body horror of, it, of films like Videodrome. But it's unnerving, it is strange, it is, you're not really sure anything of it, but it is about violence. It is about the body and its reaction to violence and the capacity of the body for violence. And he plays the main guy in it, a, a mild-mannered man um, who gets caught up in, in some local violent actions. I want to say more before I'm giving away what I think is a brilliant film that isn't seen enough these days. So yes, History of Violence, 2015, 2005. Great. Sam? Um, I've gone for two actor connections this week. Um, 
you will be aware that Rob is the huge Tolkien fan and I'm not a huge fantasy aficionado so I don't have anything thematic I suppose at this stage but the two actor connections the first one is one that I mentioned already and I mentioned how great I think he is and it's the actor Ian McKellen and um, the film we're going to recommend this week is his most recent and it's the very recent film Mr. Holmes and I have long been a fan of Sherlock Holmes and I thought this had interesting things to say. It's quite a strange film. There's not a lot in the way of narrative and it's a little bit unsatisfying but this is nothing to do with um, Ian McKellen's performance which is absolutely brilliant. And my second recommendation stems from an actor who's seen at times during the movie playing Bilbo Baggins. It's Ian Holm. Who I have several recommendations for Ian Holm. I suppose I could have mentioned Alien. Um, I could also have said something about The Borrowers, which has a special place in my heart from late 80s kids shows uh, TV. But the one I've gone for is the quite brilliant mid-90s film The Fifth Element. He is great in that and it's just a great film all round. So this week Mr Holmes and The Fifth Element. Brilliant. Well guys that's our our take on the first of the trilogy. We'll be back next week with uh, part two of Lord of the Rings. Till then you can find us both on Twitter at Petty Podcast. You find just me at life underscore academic. And you find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you back here next week. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.